I want to welcome all of you to today's discussion. I am very grateful for our guest today. And um, it's such an honor to have a sage like him on the show. I just want to first, before I introduce our guest, I want to thank you for tuning in. Please continue to like, share, and subscribe. The channel is continuing to grow. And the ministry is continuing to grow. And I, I give you guys the credit. Literally, I couldn't do it without you. And I just thank you so much. The subscribers are growing and, and all the other ways to kind of support the ministry are starting to fill in as well. So without further ado, I want to welcome Gordon Ferguson. Gordon has been preaching God's word since 1970. So I was born in 83. So there's that. Uh, he is one of the most well-known Bible teachers in the ICOC. Gordon is a graduate of Northwestern State University and the Harding Graduate School of Religion. With more than 40 years of experience, he has served as an evangelist, elder, and teacher. He trains ministers in the United States, Eurasia, and Asia. He emphasizes leadership training and teaching. Gordon has also written 17 books and numerous audio and video teaching series. Uh, Gordon and his wife, Teresa, make their home in, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Gordon jo joins the channel to discuss today the details of his new book, God Are We Good? I've got a copy here. And as people are struggling to answer fundamental questions about salvation, he answers some difficult questions to better equip the saints. Gordon, welcome to the channel. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Why don't you start us out with a little bit? Let's go back a little bit to your conversion. And then why did you go into the ministry? Well, it's a, it's a long story. It's sort of some, a, a work in progression from the early days. Uh, I was raised going to church. Uh, I wrote a little book so, some years back entitled My Three Lives. And the first life was about my experience in uh, sort of an odd little group. We called ourselves the Church of Christ, but it was a very unusual little group. But I tell about the early days there and basically my rebellion from all things religious. I was uh, definitely not into it. Uh, I got uh, married to a woman who was Baptist at the time and definitely had much more spiritual uh, ambition and interest than I did. And so uh, my mother dragged me to church when I was a kid, pretty much every week. My wife was not as successful in our early marriage. She got me there about once every two, three weeks. And the rest of the time I was fishing. But one of the churches we visited, which was more of what I call a mainstream church of Christ, uh, the preacher there was uh, a very different sort of guy, a real kind of real guy, a man's man. He, he didn't seem like a stained glass type like so many I'd met. I thought preachers were weird guys and I didn't want to be around them. But anyway, this guy uh, kind of forced <laughs> my hand and asked me to go fishing with him or take him fishing. He knew I had a, I had, I had a boat and knew how to fish. And uh, as much as I hated the idea of getting stuck in the boat with a preacher, I did that. But he was so different and uh, amazing guy. God just used him as a vessel to, to turn my life upside down. And so it wasn't all that long before I really, really got into my interest in the church. And... Uh, I had been baptized as a teen, but I never thought that was a, a correct baptism. So it was years later before I actually got baptized uh, with a disciple's commitment, put it that way. 
but uh, I certainly got converted as far as my attitudes and lifestyle and all of that uh, much earlier as a result of this guy back in our early married days. And so then I uh, uh, went from there. I was a, a school teacher, a band director. That was my undergraduate work. I was getting a master's degree in supervision and administration, intending to be a principal. And then uh, I got the preaching bug and from there went back to school to train and uh, started actually doing some preaching in 1970. So that puts me over the 50 year mark at this point. But uh, that's a, a bird's eye view. The little book, My Three Lives, you would find very interesting. Uh, I was telling a relative of mine that doesn't know me that well because they're a lot younger, but I told them, if you read My Three Lives and then a book I wrote about our marriage called Fairy Tales Do Come True, and then there's a fairly long article on my website called I Have Lost My Faith, and then dot, 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 in coincidences. And so I go back in my early life and fill in a lot of blanks just about life and what, I, what it was like as a kid and all the things that uh, worked my way and how God used all of that. And so I, I realized that so many things uh, back in my past from the very time I was born, God was working, although I had no idea and didn't see it till decades and decades later. But anyway, that was a, that's an interesting article. I sent it to uh, two good friends of mine, Tom Jones and Steve Kennard, and I said, should I even post this thing on my website? And they read it and said, yeah, it fills in a lot of blanks about you. <laughs> uh, so if you read the two books that I mentioned and that article, you would know more about me than my mother did by a long shot. Wow. So it's interesting that you say that, uh, and I, I wouldn't commercial break unless I really felt like it was a, a great inter uh, you know, insert. Um, when you look at trauma research, and part of why I brought you on is just you know, this, this merge of theology and trauma, but you, you've got this mm -hmm. theology down really well. Right. When you look at people being resilient, resilience is tricky right. um, because resilience is about how you tell the story. Right. And so even in your ministry, I see something very healthy and it's that you're, you're really focused on the story of who you are and, and what God is trying to say through your life. When right. people get stuck in trauma, they get stuck in the story that they don't have right. the pieces to tell. So one of the ways to heal is to surround yourself with people who have a coherent story. Mm -hmm. And then you get, you're in a community of coherent storytellers and you're one of those right. people. You've made, I mean, this is one of the things we see in, 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 in research is that people who have a coherent story have a better relationship generationally as well. And you, you've taken the time, this is exciting, you've taken the time to invest in understanding your story. Right. And I just want to say that's very healthy and encouraging. Right. Well, I, I was reading a book the other day about uh, a victim mindset or a victor mindset. Mm. And uh, somehow, and I had a lot of trauma growing up. I mean, I was raised in a fairly dysfunctional family. Uh, a lot of things went on through the years. A lot of things have happened to me that were at the time quite traumatic and mm. disturbing and, and whatever else. And I, I would, at times, would get into phases of a lot of negative thinking and looking only at the bad side of it. The good thing, though, 
uh, about me in dealing with trauma or traumatic events, disturbing events, is that once I get past it, I somehow see the hand of God in it uh, to the point that I emphasize the good part of it. Right. Uh, I was in Boston for 16 years, uh, served as an elder there for most of that time, and we dealt with all kinds of craziness in those 16 years. And yet I remember after we left there and moved to Phoenix for nine years, I remember my early prayer walks in Phoenix when, when I would just thank God for the 16 years in Boston and say, God, it was like a fairy tale. And to me, it really was uh, because somehow my mind uh, sifted out the negative stuff and just attributed that to the hand of God. And I was left with a positive and so many good things that happened and uh, positive things and so forth. So anyway, I think we, we've got to learn to do that. Life is going to dish out a lot of tough stuff. And if we get a victim mindset, which many, many people do today, they're looking for someone to blame, be it their gene pool, their parents, their society, whatever else. And if we get into that uh, blame mode, uh, it really messes us up. Uh, it, it does. So somehow God has blessed me for the most part uh, to be able to sift all that out and focus on the things that are more positive. And uh, I'm grateful for that and grateful to be around people that, that help me with that. Uh, I was talking to one guy the other day, uh, a neighbor down in this place in East Texas, and we spent a good bit of time, a little place we have down there. And at any rate, I, I had met this guy and talked with him, met his wife uh, the other day and introduced my wife to both of them. The guy's 85 years old. He has a mainstream Church of Christ uh, background in history, by the way. He's 85 years old, and he got up in a bucket to, with, with a chainsaw to cut down a high limb in a tree at 85, and he cut his leg off. He cut his own leg off and somehow survived. And so he's got this stocking on his leg. They had to medevac him out of the country down to a hospital and they, they saved his life at 85. Amazing how much blood he must have lost. He cut his leg off around the knee. Anyway, he's got this uh, sock on his leg and he's put eyes and in a, in a, in a, a funny face on it. And he, he says, hey, meet Stumpy here. Uh, give give Stumpy a talk. Mm. And here's a guy at 85 that just cut his leg off, and the guy is laughing and making jokes. Uh, <laughs> pretty incredible. It is. It is. It really is. I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, yeah, God has given, especially if we hang in there, he'll give us a resilience right. that only comes from walking with him. Right. Um, now, I want to I wanna shift gears to your your book. I ordered, and uh, I look forward to going through the entire deal. Obviously, for this interview, I thumbed through it to make sure that I at least was on par. Um, you wrote this book, and there was a reason why. Mm -hmm. If you could share with people why you wrote this book, why'd you write it? Okay, uh, I live in the Bible chair in Texas, part of the Bible chair. And what I have in the book applies to pretty much everyone that I know and meet that at least is 35, 40 years old and older. 
Uh, when I was a kid, for example, to give you an idea of what the Bible Belt has been like historically, it's not like this in all of the country. I understand that. But in the Bible Belt, uh, I grew up and all of my friends virtually went to church on Sunday. I, I didn't have many friends that did not go to church. Now, they may have been out partying. In fact, we were most Saturday nights and drinking and whatever else. But on Sunday, we went to church. That was just the culture. And so when I talk to people today and talk to them about spiritual things or church or whatever, uh, the average response is, yeah, I used to go to church. I need to get back to church. I mean, they have they had that sense of uh, uh, church and right and wrong and morality and all of that, whether they're living it or not. So I talk to a lot of people and have friends that, you know, they're not interested. They've said no to coming to church. They said no to coming to uh, do some Bible study with me or be with them at their place. And so the book is designed that the people that I don't have an opportunity to even talk to personally, you know, face to face, I can send the book to them. I sent many copies of this out to friends and relatives. Uh, I've given it to a lot of people, people that won't sit down with me. And yet, if they'll read the book, uh, it covers the basic areas that people appeal to, uh, to feel okay about themselves as far as their eternity and meeting God and all of that. So there are three basic questions that I answer in the book and show that these are not adequate uh, for the judgment day and meeting God but they're very common responses. I talked to someone about, you know, how do you think you are? If you were to die today, how do you think you'll be with God? And the answers I get are usually one of those three answers. And most people will say, I'm okay. Yeah, I appreciate that. The, the three questions, the three statements, I'm a good person. I, I love the way you put this one. I had a salvation experience at some mm -hmm. point, And then I am co a committed Christian, um, essentially, those are the, the things that you get. And, and I would say, I love that you talk about the Bible Belt, because I think that people underestimate how challenging at times uh, it, can, it can be to, to help people see, like you were talking about a, a relationship, like, you know, becoming a Christian is an allegiance issue. You swear your allegiance to Christ. Right. Baptism is an allegiance event. And so when we, when we see people break down in the, their theology of, of, of salvation, I mean, when you look at our culture and the landscape, there's many different reasons why. There's a lot of narratives about mm -hmm. conversion out there. And so it is important. And, and yet at times, if you major in conversion and then you minor in maturity, that can also create a, a, you know, an intersect that you don't want either. And so this is one part of it, but this... I wouldn't want people to think that this is the only thing that matters. You've written so many books about maturing people as well, right. <laughs> but this needed to be talked about. Why, why now? Like in terms of uh, the, the culture that we're in, do you think the church is at a, is at a place where it really needs this? Well, when the book came out, our uh, region leader, we have different worship groups and regions in the uh, Dallas church, pretty good sized church, but, uh, my region leader uh, is Derek Vett, and he read the book and says, wow, he said, this is 
our people need this. They need to have a review of the basics because they've lost a lot of feel for the basics. They haven't been studying with people that much. So they're not, you know, sort of keeping themselves fit uh, as far as how they see conversion or they see what it means to be a Christian, et cetera. And so he had me do four midweeks uh, for his region just to go through the book and to basically teach the, uh, the lessons out of the book. And then uh, another of our region leaders in the Dallas area, Mark Mancini, did exactly the same thing. He had heard about it from Derek, evidently. Uh, I'm not on staff. I don't go to staff meetings, but he evidently had heard it, uh, uh, something good about it from Derek and asked me to do the same with his region, which I did. And so these guys are saying it's valuable just for our people to kind of replow uh, the basic ground of meeting God and what the Bible says about that. But I, I think generally the people that I share with, uh, you know, many of them have one of these three answers and yet they often are a little fearful about just sitting down and studying because they honestly don't want to change. They don't want to be challenged, but uh, I beg them to read the book. Come on, man, read, read the book. All right, I'll leave you alone. <laughs> you read the book. And then sometimes I'll do uh, like I did one of my neighbors that, that very not interested, but I said, listen, you guys come over, uh, give me one shot. And so I said, let me tell my story. Let me tell you what makes me tick. And if it resonates with you, we'll do more. If it doesn't, I'll leave you alone. And I've done that through the years a lot of times. I've met people even for the first time and said, listen, I'll buy you lunch. I'll pay. Let me give you my story. Let me share with you. One time, if it pricks an interest, we can do more. If not, fine. I'll leave you alone if that's what you want. And I've done that uh, a number of times with people. Uh, I remember once doing it with a guy that had visited church. It was an atheist. Uh, I asked him, you know, how he enjoyed church. He says, well, it was interesting. How'd you like my sermon? I happened to have preached in this region in Boston that day. He said, uh, it, it was good. You're a good speaker, but uh, I don't believe in God. And so I hit him up to have one lunch with me. I'll pay for it. Let me give you my spiel. And uh, then after that, if you don't want to meet again, fine. And that led to his conversion. Wow. Uh, I just talked to evidences with him. And uh, it got through enough that he was willing to keep talking. And so we got together a number of times and he ended up being a great disciple. Beautiful, beautiful. I want to I get into the weeds now as All it right. relates to... Uh, and, and I'm not saying challenging the book, but we, we, there's this conversion narrative that we as Christians are really struggling with. I think part of it's there's a, a shame uh, that people have. Uh, we, we're in an interesting intersect that I'll describe more mm -hmm. about team works versus team faith. I mean, it's kind of where the Reformation led to is these extremes. And um, in terms of engaging people, we, we want to make sure that we're not too patternistic, so to speak. Right. Um, and so I, I want to kind of deal with this piece of 
okay, our, our movement's about, you know, restoring things and we better be pretty good at restoring things if we're gonna call ourselves a restoration move. But yeah. we look for a pattern. There's four or five things typically that we look for in terms of how to how to look. And our, that's a bit of the DNA. And I like that you use mainstream uh, versus this traditional uh, label that people throw. Um, but we came from this heritage of, of looking for how to restore what God's saying how do we balance as we're doing this when it comes to conversion, not becoming locked in like the Pharisees when it came to pattern, and at the same time making sure that we were we remain true to what God says is true about being saved? Because I find that's a dilemma that a lot of Christians have right now. Okay, I think uh, when I use the term pattern theology, which is definitely the restoration movement's theology. And we came out of the restoration movement through the, what I call mainstream churches of Christ. I used to call it mainline churches of Christ. And I was in a meeting about a year and a half ago, a teacher a conference thing. And we had a number of guys from the mainline church of Christ. And they suggested we call it the mainstream church of Christ. I said, fine, that actually makes sense, more sense. And so uh, that was their request. And I've tried to do that since then. But at any rate, we come out of that, and so our churches call our, ourselves uh, the, uh, the uh, Church of Christ or Christian Church or something similar to that, uh, and the terminology is fine either way. But uh, we do have a restoration theology. Now, when, when I use the term pattern theology, I, I mainly am using that in a negative sense because it has some parts of it that I think aren't good. I think that it hurts us in really interpreting the Bible. But on the other hand, the word pattern's not a bad word. I looked it up in uh, Merriam-Webster today online, and it had 11 different uh, uh, parts to the definition, but all of them basically mean to follow a pattern or to follow a, an accepted model or to imitate it, whatever. Now, I believe in pattern theology. For the guys making airplanes that I fly in, I want those dudes to follow the pattern exactly. Uh, when it comes to the pharmaceutical people, I want them to follow the pattern exactly. When I go to the uh, pharmacy, I want the pharmacist to follow the pattern exactly. And that, that's true in so many areas of life. We want things to be exact. That's not a bad thing. But what happened, I think, in the restoration movement is we look back in the Old Testament when God had the tabernacle rebuilt. And when you look through Exodus, the specifications for the tabernacle are so exacting, it's amazing. And so he uses the Hebrew word translated pattern uh, three times in Exodus, I think, chapter 25, as he's describing everything about the tabernacle and all the surrounding things that are a part of the tabernacle worship. And he talks about the dimensions, he talks about colors, he talks about materials, and it had to be exactly as God said. And then I have read older Restoration writers who said, if God was that exacting in the pattern for the Old Testament tabernacle, then surely he wants us to be that exacting 
in how we have the New Testament tabernacle or temple, the church. And that was sort of the reasoning process. Well, I think where it went offline and we got in trouble is what we tried to pattern ourselves after was not simply the New Testament. It was the New Testament first century church. Now, that got us in trouble because uh, in order to, to really pattern ourselves in the sense of wanting to do everything God asks of us and nothing that he doesn't want us to do, and, and trying to follow that, you have to deal with context. You have to learn to deal with the context of a biblical text. You have to not just look at a verse and come up with some theory about it. You have to look at the context of it, the context of the Bible book it's in, the context of the chapter, the context of the immediate verses. Uh, we have to look at a lot of things about the context of the Bible text we're looking at itself or the topic. And we also have to look mm -hmm. at the uh, cultural context. Okay, here's what they did in the first century. Is that a pattern for me? Or is this just one way that it can be done and the way they did it in their cultural context? And if we miss that one, we end up imitating some crazy things. And the little church I was raised in, they used one cup for communion because it says at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup, not the cups plural. Well, he was referring to the contents of the cup anyway, but that's a whole other deal that I won't get into. But uh, th there were so many things like that that people imitated. Uh, I talked to one guy, I was explaining this to one, one uh, young man once I was training. And he said, yeah, he said, uh, all the examples you use are sort of weird things. That was the church I was raised in. He said, we had a church that was built on stilts. So we could meet in the upper room because so many times Jesus and the apostles met in the upper room or the early uh, church uh, in an upper room, uh, like Paul in Acts 20, I guess, where the young man fell out the window. But at any rate, you have to look at cultural context. And this has gotten us into all kinds of problems in interpretation of the Bible. Uh, we've not done that. But there are other things that we can do in looking at a pattern anyway. We can look at a partial pattern. For example, a lot of um, churches, evangelical type churches, they have what I call an incomplete pattern. And so if I want to have a pattern and look at everything that God wants me to do as a husband, I've got to look at all the passages in the Bible to find out what a husband's supposed to be or what a marriage is supposed to be. I can't just find a couple I like and say, this is my theology based on one or two. But in the conversion process, a lot of churches have certain favorite verses they look at. And they don't look at the complete picture and all the passages that apply to the process of conversion. And so they have what I call an incomplete uh, pattern that they're following. Or it may be just a mistaken pattern by not looking at the context. One of the common verses used in uh, many churches uh, for conversion is uh, Revelation 3.20. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock if anyone lets me in. We'll 
uh, you know, have dinner together and have fellowship, in other words. And so they look at that and say, you just need to let Jesus into your heart, invite him into your heart, and that's all it takes to be saved. And they neglect to look at the fact that Revelation 3 was written to a church, people who had already been converted. It wasn't telling them how to be converted. It was telling them how to get reconnected with Christ because of the sins that had disconnected them or at least were in danger of disconnecting them from Christ. So anyway, the word pattern is a very interesting word. And uh, there are a lot of subjects right now. Uh, for example, uh, women's role in Absolutely. the church. I've written some on that. Some of my writing on that has disturbed people. Mm. But it's a cultural context consideration that I'm asking people to take. Uh, and that, there are a number of subjects we do that on. You're, you're not going to go back and look in the New Testament and what it says about the topic of slavery and say, yes, we should have that applied today. Correct. You're not going to do that. Uh, why go back to issues about women's role and say, well, it's whatever it said to them, it applies equally in exactly the same way to us without regard to culture. And so uh, one, one book, uh, one writer that I found especially helpful, I've heard him in person, uh, written him some, know him to some degree, but his name is John Mark Hicks. He is a professor of theology. Absolutely. And university. And uh, he's written some books recently that I find intriguing. One of them is Searching for the Pattern. Yep. <laughs> but he referred to it in the book that I did read. And the book that I did read is called Women Serving God. And so he, in that book, talks about his three different views. Yep. His early view that was very restrictive of women in a church service. Then he talked about kind of a medium ground, which is about where the ICOC churches are today, sort of a medium ground. And then he talked in the last part of the book about where he is now, which is a much more progressive view of what a woman can do in church. Uh, and so I find myself having traveled exactly the same three paths that he's gone down. So it was rather intriguing to read how he got there. Uh, I know how I got there, but we ended up in the same, we started in the same place at the same middle ground and ended up in the same place. But his book is uh, so valuable for a couple of things besides just the women's role thing. Uh, for example, he does sort of a synopsis, a summary of the pattern theology issue. His first book that I mentioned there, Searching for the Pattern, is much more in detail, I'm sure. But in the book about women, he actually goes back and gives, to me, a very, very effective summary of the uh, pattern theology that we've used that's off base in some ways, and he shows how that's true. So just that summary synopsis is very valuable in the book. And then the second part of it is a part of restoration history that I haven't studied much until I read what he wrote. 
But he went back and showed that in our earlier days of the restoration movement, we had guys that were otherwise quite conservative who were very progressive in their view of what women could do in a church service. And it was astounding to me how much is back there. And I knew many of the people he quoted, I knew their books, I've read their books and they're very conservative and patternistic in many respects, but with a women's role, they were much more progressive than I thought. And this book is making an impact on uh, leaders in our movement that are reading it with an open mind. I know some have read it with a closed mind. And Correct. Doesn't matter what they're going to read, they're going to come out in the same place because they've got some kind of emotional hangup about mm -hmm. women. I don't know what it is. If I could get with them and talk to them long enough, I could find out whether it was their mother, their aunt, a woman school teacher. I can find something in their background to account for their emotional reaction. Uh, at least I nearly always can if I get enough time to talk with them about their background, they're willing to be honest. But at any rate, the ones that read it with an open mind, and I could name names you would recognize in the ICOC, they are being affected by this book because it is so well written. Yeah. It does expose some things that we have not thought about before but it deals with pattern theology, the bad part of that, and then how to do cultural, contextual interpretation. I appreciate that. And you've given a very thorough uh, framework for us to now, we can pivot really nicely. And thank you for taking the time to so thoroughly do that because uh, the next direction I wanna take this into, and by the way, Bible and gender, if you're looking for something that is somewhat representative of our fellowship of churches, the ICOC has put out a book. I, I, I want to tell people about this Bible and gender book. This is not super robust. It is an overview. So, but it's, and if you're, if you're trying to figure out Bible and gender and, and how we're supposed to, you know, what's our basic framework, I think it's a good place to start. But I think the books that Gordon recommended are better um, in terms of the depth. Um, right. But, but let me, let me, let me just, Let's, let's throw trauma in. So trauma gets things that go together that shouldn't go together mm -hmm. and things that should go together don't go together. So let's, let's, let me throw out some theological terms for the people. If you're listening, I'm going to throw some, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to throw some theological terms out, but we're going to explain them and, and they're very important. It's this idea of ordinance versus sacrament. When I go back and I look at how the Reformation, like what were the things that happened that led to the Reformation and what were the reactions from the Reformation? There comes this idea of sacrament versus ordinance. And this is where baptism and conversion really fit snugly into the conversation. When you think about what necessitated this tearing away from essentially abusive ecclesiology, abusive institution that was done in a totalitarian way that the Catholic Church for, I don't know, 1100 years or so, there was this reaction and you see it with Calvin and Zwingli, right? The Anabaptists essentially, I think they're kind of descendants of Zwingli's philosophy, so to speak, but, and then reform theology is all about God's sovereignty. And you see these extreme reactions that now everything is only symbolic almost. And so baptism is interesting because it's an allegiance event. It's like when you graduate, you walk across a stage, you get your diploma, or you swear in. A better, better example, my wife was in the Air Force. And when you get sworn in, that's a ceremony. Now, 
An ordinance is basically saying that this event is only reflective, but it's not participatory. However, a sacrament has this aspect of participation in terms of the heavens and the, and the terrestrial, the earthly. What I notice after the Reformation is it wasn't just in terms of conversion and baptism, where you see this pendulum over to only symbolic. There are many other areas too, where things have quote unquote been taken to an extreme. So when I talk to people about baptism, I actually don't start with that anymore. What I've actually learned to start with is their fear about works, theology, or legalism. And the reason why I say that, if you go back to the trauma, they drown the Anabaptists. If you just take that for an example, they drown them. Do you think that intergenerationally, that's something that's going to be forgotten, number one. You also have the Catholic Church, that's a billion people. I mean, in, in church terms, I mean, they're Microsoft. They're in a completely different class. Yeah. And you find is a stress response to, you know, that type of dynamic. All people want to know, and I think this is where in our movement, we really struggle. People want to know, are you on team faith? Or are you on team works? Right. Here's the problem with that. Both. There is an aspect when it comes to conversion that is more sacramental. In my thought, right? When it comes to now, do we do that with communion? No. Right. And the Catholic church, they have like seven sacraments, so to speak, but I look at conversion. I look at baptism as an allegiance. That is when you're sworn in. Mm -hmm. And there is descriptive and prescriptive in terms of conversion. It's not just description. It's not just symbolic. Right. It's also ceremonial. And ceremony mm -hmm. involves ritual and it involves an aspect of symbol both. So baptism is partly a symbol too, because we see that in 1 Peter 3. It's not that there is no symbol, but right. I believe partly because of the trauma, and you talk about this in one of your works, Gordon, that we are dealing with a series of reactions, a series mm -hmm. of backlashes and backlashes. And people like me, we have to study to look at the origin story of how that even happened in the first place. So that's part of where I'm at. If we could just for a moment, you could help me with my understanding of sacrament and ordinance. Is that fair? that that separation that you see after the reformation is part of what we might be dealing with well whether i would use the uh, same terminology to describe it or not sure <laughs> well known among our people uh, I, I would say certainly there was a reaction uh, against a very works oriented religion uh, of you know a thousand years and more uh, before the Reformation. And so the Reformation ran from the concept of works. Mm -hmm. And so people with that background would uh, react uh, to baptism, you know, saying it's a work. People right. do say that. Okay, you're, you're saying that you, you got to have a work. And uh, I've had interesting conversations uh, fairly recently about calling it, uh, you know, a, a an absolute work by which you save yourself. And so it's, it's a deeper issue, but there's a reaction against that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, then the opposite reaction is baptism became in the restoration movement such a focus. Hmm. It was almost, okay, the big thing is baptism. And it took a lot of emphasis, in my judgment, off Jesus, right. 
a lot of emphasis off really living as an image bearer of his. And it wasn't so much, you know, the life that you lived, it's did you get baptism right? And there were debates about that. And I've heard some of them, read some of them, uh, but it was such a big deal. And it is important. Understand the debates, uh, you know, and, and the days in which they took place. I understand that. But uh, when I approach it with people, baptism is, as you say, down the line. You don't start with bad, just getting baptized. I mean, that's the whole problem with the, uh, the evangelical reaction. For them, it's just get saved. You're lost. You need to get saved. Jesus is the only way. Accept him into your heart and be saved. And there's not a whole lot of follow-up about what kind of life does that look like? What about transformation? Conversions one, what about transformation? What about being an image bearer? What about uh, being the light set on the hill and representing Jesus to people that are not going to see him any other way except in your life? Uh, so there, there's so much involved there, but I often start with the concept of discipleship and just the whole thing of our relationship with Jesus. What, what is that? What does it look like? What kind of commitment do you have? Why do you have it? How does it show up in your life? That's not a work either. It's a relationship. And then I talk about the, the one another relationships, the horizontal relationship within discipleship. How do we help each other be like him, the vertical? Uh, how do we do that together? How are we a family that accomplishes that? But even in the little book, uh, that we started with on God Are We Good, uh, when I talk about the, the church and, and what God really wants in conversion and all of that, I, I talk about uh, several things about what it means to be a Christian. It's not just somebody that got saved and prayed Jesus into their heart or even from our vantage point got baptized. It's not just about doing that. That's the beginning point like a baby being born. Let's, how are we going to stay alive? How are we going to grow? How are we going to mature? There's so much more. Uh, baptism's a beginning, a necessary one, just like a baby coming out of the womb. But goodness, that's a brief starting place for the rest of your life of growing and maturing and all of that. So anyway, there are a lot of uh, reactions from reformation to restoration to evangelicalism and uh, then a thousand reactions in our crazy mixed up world today. And those reactions aren't going anywhere. Again, we're talking about 1100 years or so where works, I mean, that became an economy. Right. And so we are, we're kind of in the blast radius mm -hmm. of, you know, a millennia of how ecclesia you know an ecclesiological level where things were done and we are still in that in other words it's it's interesting how and I, i'm going to have you define this term evangelical in a moment but it's interesting how the basics for what make you an individual an evangelical sorry are um they're like what we would say but they're a little bit different and there's this ecumenical aspect in other words there's more acceptance as you find in the evangelical world and it's easier to get a lot of people in when the conversion narrative is a certain way 
Right. And so one of the things I've accepted is that, I don't know if it's because of the trauma, but, but there's an aspect of the way we teach about conversion that feels exclusive. Um, and again, the Catholic church can get away with it because they're, they're Microsoft, but yeah. smaller folks, you know, we are going to be labeled as teamworks. Again, trauma creates extremes and then it creates yeah. rigid associations. Again, the, the, what makes us human is the ability to do both and, and I would right. contend in scripture, it's a both and, and I actually wouldn't say that baptism is necessarily a work. Um, again, I believe it's when we swear our allegiance to Christ. I think a bigger issue, Gordon, that I, I probably am more concerned about is people, un, people's understanding of covenant, because if you don't understand covenant, then you're not really going to be able to understand where baptism fits. You know, I look at when, when, when Paul addresses, uh, being sealed in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you see everybody get all worked up about the mode of being sealed, but it's very clear that it's God's spirit who seals you. Now, if you want to say that it's circumcision, you're wrong. Cause Paul argues that, um, if you want to say that it's infant baptism, I would say, well, Covenant is about two people who have the capacity for relationship. Um, if you want to say that it's only symbolic, then I've got to go back to the text in Acts 19, and I got to ask them, why does Paul say we need to rebaptize those folks? Again, I, it's, I think people are missing that there's a moment where you're sealed. This is New Testament way to get sealed. The mode is what we argue, whether you sprinkle or whatever it may be, we can argue that, but we get sealed through God's spirit. And sometimes I find that as we're talking about this, not you and I, but we're leaving out the Holy spirit. The Holy spirit is the one who does the transformation. The Holy spirit is the one who seals us. And that's Paul's argument. Mm -hmm. It's the Holy spirit. Who's working before, during, and after you get converted and it gets all the credit. So mm -hmm. I just think the Holy spirit seems to be missing for some people. And then that, that piece of when you get the Holy Spirit, I think if you if you can answer that honestly, then you can start to see baptism more clearly. In my in my limited thought of, of this subject. Okay, well, I, I think the uh, there there are a number of things that play into how people view the conversion process. The evangelical thing I'll talk about in a moment. Yeah, mainly, but. Um, uh, one of the big problems in the Western world is we're so individualistic that everything is about, quote, you individually getting saved. And so you pray Jesus into your heart. Uh, back in the days of the Billy Graham Crusades, I was talking with someone who's older who uh, was quite familiar with those and has watched many of them on TV, if not uh, been to some. And uh, Billy Graham Crusades, was uh, they were all about getting you saved. And he was a very good speaker, very persuasive. It was all about getting you saved, and then not much about what happens after that regarding you and other people in the covenant or in the family of God. And so our Western world kind of functions that way, whereas the rest of the world is, is more of a, a group or a family theology about how things work. And so if we understand even the part that being baptized into Christ is also uh, being baptized into his body, into his family, into his church, then that makes us automatically brothers and sisters in Christ, blood brothers and sisters, blood, blood of Christ, brothers and sisters, 
and we are together and functioning as a family uh, to help each other and to bear the image of Christ to the world and affect the world through who we are, what we do, how we act, uh, how we serve, uh, how we get along with each other. And many verses could be quoted on that. So a part of this whole covenant thing is that it is a group covenant into which we come, even though we individually accept the covenant and come into a relationship with Christ. But at the same time, we come into a covenant with all the others who have done that. So that seems to me of some importance. Evangelicalism, we've mentioned the term. Evangelical, if you look it up, it's basically going to be very simple. An evangelical person is someone who believes the Bible's the word of God. They believe that people are lost, that they need to get saved, that Jesus is the only way to be saved, and faith only is how we get saved. And if you let me define terms, I'll agree with all that. So when I say faith, that we're saved by faith only, at least on man's part, the big part is God's grace. We're saved by grace through faith. Grace is the big part. That's what actually earns uh, the forgiveness. Our faith is simply accepting that gift. You know, no merit in the accepting of it at all. It's just accepting what God has given us in Christ. So if you let me define faith, I would say easily we're saved by faith only on man's part. But if you look at faith as defined in, for example, Hebrews 11, 6, my favorite uh, more broad uh, treatment there of the definition, he says, without faith, it's impossible to be pleasing to God, but he who would come to God uh, has to believe that he is, that he rewards those that seek him. And so you've got within that uh, those who believe the basic facts of the Bible, they trust God, that he's a rewarder. So there's a trust aspect, and the thing that you respond to uh, in, in trusting are the promises, and then those that seek him or obey him, the thing that you obey are the commands. And so to be a person of faith, a, a saving faith, is someone who believes the facts of the Bible, they trust the promises of the Bible, and they obey the commands of the Bible. And I lay all of that out clearly in the little book to help people see that often faith is defined so narrowly as one aspect of that rather than the package deal. So my problem with the evangelical world in general on conversion would be an incomplete view of it not being willing to look at all the passages on it, but then also a bigger issue is how you define faith, because if you define it the right way, it talks about the entire life from that point forward, giving, uh, given to Christ and to be under his lordship, happily, voluntarily, etc. Absolutely. I, I appreciate the individualism that you brought into the, the scenario. So I think I think, gosh, there's so many things that you've just said that are so noteworthy. Um, the individualism, and then we put the, the reaction that trauma does. Trauma creates a sequence of intergenerational reactions. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we're looking at, again, I think through the lens of, of, 
of this huge fear around works and convenience. I mean, I think about the, you know, first, second, third great revivals. I mean, tent meetings became popular. You could quote unquote swear a whole bunch of people in. I mean, I think there's reasons why you see uh, in terms of in a soteriological perspective, things are that way. There was convenience, there was modernity entered in. There's different reasons, I think, why the conversion narrative is generally this one piece where you just, you accept or you pray Jesus into your heart, which we don't see in New Testament scripture. But I would say to your point of why, based off of biblical principle, that praying Jesus into your heart and just this sort of overall accepting Christ is that it, you know, it's not about a person, it's about a people, <laughs> to your point. And I think there's a term, you know, I don't, I don't mean to throw out too many terms, but a suzerain versus a vassal. In our culture, we, we don't see ourselves as vassals. Again, suzerain is someone in the ancient Near East who had a lot of power, and a vassal was somebody who had little power. And what, what happened is you'd swear yourself to one, one suzerain, one lord. In the New Testament, you see this idea of a patron and a client. And so you have one suzerain, and again, if we understand covenant, then we understand that I'm not just swearing myself, I'm a vassal, I'm a, pe a people as a vassal, then they have an allegiance. They have a relationship with the suzerain. Well, our culture, to your point, is very individualistic. It is, um, there's like a rigid commitment to self, even over others. And so I think that the offer of the gospel in some ways is a bit like, I can't remember how you turn it, but there's this idea of fire insurance. Mm. And it can become this personal, almost like it gets directly marketed to us. And then it's not really based in community or discipleship. And so that's concerning. You got people who aren't going to grow and work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They don't have a community of folks. And so I, I think that's part. I like that you bring the individualism into the equation as far as why this, uh, this error in terms of conversion is ran amok. Let me say, okay. let me please, say this. Please. Uh, even though I talked about it in the context of an evangelical conversion. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, get get saved. You may never go to church, may never be a part of anything, et cetera, but you got to get saved. And if you tie in the fact that most evangelicals still believe once saved, always saved, uh, then you got it made. If you got saved and you can't lose it, then no matter what you do the rest of your life, when you die, you're you're going to heaven. Let's go there. Let's yeah, go there. Think about that, though, as a trauma response. Why would that type of extreme in endorsement in terms of I I I salvation, why do you think that would form, Gordon? Well, it, if, if you talk about why it formed in the once saved, always saved thing, yeah. that, it all goes back to Calvinism. Right. And of course, Calvinism was uh, responding to the works orientation, the human orientation of everything, uh, and saying, no, it's, it's God. In fact, it's all God. Right. And so Calvinism starts off with, uh, you know, it spells tulip, the individual points of it, but total depravity. You're born depraved. And so then uh, the, the you is uh, unconditional election. Since you're totally depraved, you can't do anything unless God does it. And so it's unconditional election. There's nothing that you can do because you're, you're dead. And so you have that. And then if uh, God elects you, 
and he only elects certain people and others he doesn't elect, then Jesus only died for the ones that are going to ultimately be saved. So then you have L in the tulip, which is limited atonement. He only died for the saved, not the ones that will be lost. And then uh, irresistible grace is the I, uh, since he has chosen you and Jesus has died for you and it's unconditional on your part, then you can't resist. If you're, you're supposed to be saved, you're going to get saved. Nothing you can do about it. And if that's true, then you can't ever lose it. And so you have then the uh, P, which is perseverance of the saints. And that means that you are once saved, always saved. But uh, that's the crazy thing about the doctrine now. Most evangelicals have rejected the rest of the tulip. Exactly. Except, except for that one. And uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a very devout uh, uh, evangelical guy. Uh, in fact, I would say he's the most devout guy that I have had a personal relationship with in a long time. He's a very, very spiritually minded guy, uh, very dedicated to his church, et cetera. But he asked me, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I said, no, I don't. And he says, well, I do, but he says, so-and-so doesn't. I think it's one of his, uh, his, his close relatives who teaches in a theological seminary or is in the ministry in their church. And, and many evangelicals have rejected it because the very foundation of it is Calvinism, and they've rejected all the rest of Calvinism. There's really no basis for holding on to it uh, if you reject the foundation of it. But that's a a little deeper theology there and uh the but first necessary. book i ever yeah the first book i ever wrote by the way was called prepared to answer well, I got back two in copies. 19, yeah 1995 and then a later edition i think in 2010 updated it some but i go through all of that calvinism i go through the catholic church several five chapters i think and then i go through calvinism and then i go uh, through the more evangelical views of conversion now. And, and so I go through a lot of this church history stuff and deal with uh, the outgrowth of the basic doctrines of their day. So uh, anyway, it's a little deep, deeper theology on the Calvinism part of it, but it does still find itself on that part of uh Perseverance. Another way that once saved, always saved is stated is the security of the believer. Mm. And that's a good term. I love that one. I agree with that one. I have a friend once, he preached one of the best sermons on grace I ever heard in the mainstream church of Christ. It's really good. But he said in the sermon that this guy he was studying with said, man, it's going to be so hard for me to give up the uh the uh, security of the believer and so my preacher friend said oh you don't give that one up we believe in the security of the believer what we don't believe in is the security of the unbeliever <laughs> and he said just like an unbeliever can become a believer and be saved a believer can revert and become an unbeliever and lose his salvation and so security of the believer, I, I buy into that totally. There's a guy once, uh, a Baptist fellow, 
uh, in his background, but he, he started writing a book on the security of the believer to show that their Baptist doctrine was correct. And uh, he ended up, it was called Life in the Sun. I met the guy uh, personally, but he wrote this book. He started off to say, you know, once saved, always saved, perseverance. And the more he studied the Greek, he found out that when it talks about the believer not losing his salvation, it was always in a continual action verb state. And so the idea that he came up with in his book, very good book, but uh, the idea he came up with is, yeah, as long as you are believing, you're not going to be lost. So the security of the believer doesn't mean someone that believed 20 years ago, but someone who is living a life of a believer, the life of faith. Yeah, you're not going to lose your salvation. No well, one's going to pluck you out of my hand, Jesus said, John 10. Well, I appreciate that because one of the things that people can feel is that their salvation is somehow fragile. Right. And the way I look at it from scripture, I mean, specifically when you look in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, right. you see this, uh, this verb in ketalipo. And it means to forsake it. Typically, like in the King James, it means right. forsake the assembly. Right. Um, and I think there's different reasons why it's it's used and used there. But yeah. this idea of forsake, the, the forsaking is not the same thing as being flaky. Now, I don't suggest being flaky right. because it's only a matter of time before you likely forsake. But this idea of salvation is a fairly durable agreement. <laughs> it's, it's not mm -hmm. something that's so lost and so forth i would and, yeah. I, and i would say part of the the when you look at attachment theory mm -hmm. and how people attach like their spiritual attachment versus their earthly attachment one of the things that is important for people is that sense of belonging because that's part of what allows them to be resilient if you don't belong you see decreased resiliency mm -hmm. um, i have Matina montez on here we talked about that idea of how powerful it is to belong you're going to go through stuff mm -hmm. stuff's going to come up this is a process where we are, like you said, we're imaging someone and you know, we're all co-imagers. And so as we go through this, we're gonna have sin, maybe even addictions that have to be worked through. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're working through that, it may not be clean. Right. And as far as I can tell, when we look in scripture, God's always working with a mess. Like even right. the most amazing disciple is still pretty messy. Some pretty, some pretty full diapers. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's not something that God enters into life. That's why it's a covenant. And this idea of salvation, I mean, to me, being something you can't lose is, is, is unfortunate. Um, and again, I look at the trauma of, again, the Catholic Church. You made people earn everything and you turned it into an economy and you can't think that, oh, in 400 years, that's just going to dissipate out of people's right. intergenerational narrative of how people form their theology. And I think one of the things I want to do is I want to be compassionate to people who are hypervigilant towards works. Mm -hmm. And we've got to help people understand what the Bible meant about legalism. I've got a guy coming on in a couple of weeks, uh, Marty Solomon of the Bama podcast, and we're going to get into legalism. What is legalism? If people could right. understand that, mm -hmm. then we'd find that some of their overreactions were unnecessary, but people keep that guard up because they're constantly worried about works because they don't have an understanding of works that I think is adequate and we could do. So yeah, I, I love what you're talking about. The last thing I would say 
on this note is if you can get into a marriage, you can get out of one. So yeah. it makes no sense to me that all of a sudden people can agree to the covenant of relationship with God, but not get out of that. And to your point, evangelicals do seem to hold on to the, the perseverance mm-hmm. aspect. Overreactions uh, to extremes lead to overemphases in that reaction. Wow. Same so word. When, when we overreacted uh, on the conversion thing, then we so emphasized in restoration history, baptism, it became way too big a thing. Wow. We think. Then the whole thing of uh, teaching against Calvinism and the fact that you can lose your salvation, you can fall away. We so emphasized that that it almost seemed like it was inevitable that you were going to. And we missed, as you say, the whole covenant concept. Uh, we are in the scripture presented as the bride of Christ, mm. the Old Testament. God talked about being the husband. There is a spiritual marriage between the church and Christ, between us and God. And uh, I, I can tell you how marriage works. I've been married 56 years. That's in, Wow, that's incredible. Uh, and, and we have a wonderful marriage. I wrote a little book about it. But in my uh, book called uh, Romans, The Heart Set Free, a practical exposition of Romans, I use illustrations about relationships and about family. And I say, for example, there are times when I'm a lousy husband and I feel badly about that and I repent of that, but I don't ever feel unmarried in those times. Yeah. And I don't feel unmarried with God uh, just because I have a horrible day or a horrible week or a horrible month. Or, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, yeah. I think God is very patient. I think we can fall away. I just think it's a whole lot harder to do than we think. Thank you for Based saying on that. covenant and relationship and God's love and his, what Paul called in the NIV, his unlimited patience based on who God is, uh, I think he works with us a long time before we lose that relationship and puts, he may put us through all kinds of things and we may be in the wilderness, but I think we still remain in a relationship. So Romans is the thing that the book in the Bible that is my favorite. It set my heart free like none else. Thank you for adding that, and, and and I really appreciate you sharing that because what you've just shared um, as a teacher, as an elder, as an evangelist is reassuring to people who, uh, w- this is a safe harbor, you yeah. know, this is a volunteer army, and it's, it's a safe harbor based yeah. off of truth. Um, we do have to, at some point, be a broker of reality, which I appreciate you writing this book because we're getting into times where people just... We're trying to hold everyone accountable for everything all at once. Yeah. And it's it's a lot. And so, you know, people are a bit reticent or hesitant to to speak truth to their neighbors if they're living a good life and so forth or whatever. And we don't know how to get into the conversation. One one thing that I might so I'm I'm big on generations. I did a a, a video with Steve Staten about generational tension a while ago. And uh one of the things that I, I think of when I think of the generational stuff is the next generation, I want us to be a, a lot more unified between teachers, elders, and evangelists. 
and I'll, I'll even throw deacons into that because I think it's important yeah. as well. But getting the the biblical roles and then getting people with their gifts working together, I don't feel like that's something my generation can afford to miss on. And I just find, without going too much into it, that there is, I don't want to say friction or just a lack of contact. But when I think about elders, teachers, and evangelists, we, you know, we, we, we can get people to be evangelists and appointed and all that, and that's awesome. But getting people appointed as elders and teachers is so vital. And it's, it, I think maybe our parent heritage, you know, as far as mainstream, maybe, you know, without getting into all that, it's been difficult to appoint teachers and elders, especially elders. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is some, what would you like to see for the next generation as it relates to elders, teachers, and evangelists working well to lead and equip God's people for works of service? I think our problem has been, and in many ways still is, we have never been able to deal with the concept of authority spiritually. Hmm. And so one of the books I wrote, I did a couple, uh, Wyndham Shaw and I wrote a book together called Golden Rule Leadership. And I wrote a much longer one called Dynamic Leadership and just tried to help people see. We, we, I don't think in terms of titles and positions. Jesus said, don't be called rabbi, don't be called uh, father, et cetera. But Paul called himself all of that. But it was a role he was talking about, role and function, not position and title. And that's Matthew 23, if you'll really look at that. And so I have tried for all of my years of being in the ICLC, which started in uh, 1985 and preaching several years before that uh, to a lot of ICLC churches, at least that was the root system back then. And uh, I've, I've tried to keep emphasizing this thing, that our roles are different, but we're all on level ground at the foot of the cross. When you start thinking Who's over whom? You got a problem. I think you got a problem. I think you have it in a marriage. When you start thinking of, I'm over you. Uh, I don't function that way with my wife. She's the wife. I'm the husband. We have our roles. We intertwine. Uh, we kid each other about who's leading what. There's some things she, she, she leads. She's better at it than me. I get out of the way. Let her lead it. But the whole thing of, of leader, that, that's, a, that's a toxic concept if you don't get the spiritual accuracy of that. Jesus said the greatest of all is the servant of all. We still don't understand that in general. And so this, this thing of elders, teachers, and evangelists working together, we, we, many people still think in terms of, well, who's over whom? Who's got the final call? Who's got the final shot? And I think that's tragic. Makes me mad. It makes me sad. It makes me want to yell. It makes me want to cry. It's just so sad and so unlike Jesus. We are a family. We have different functions in the family. It's not who's more important than the other. We have different functions. And if we all do it, then we're a functioning group, we're a functioning family, we're a functioning uh, body. But uh, I don't sit around and think, you know, well, my 
knows is uh, bigger than something else. And so it's more important, you know, I would like it a little smaller, but be that as it may, you know, it has its function. I'm glad it does. I'm glad my ears work. I'm glad every part of me works, but I, I don't go around thinking about which is more important. I want them all to work. Gord, I needed to hear that more than you know, and there's reasons why I needed to hear that. And I, um, I really appreciate what you just shared. And there's a lot of men and women, women and men in my demographic who needed to hear what you just heard. Mm -hmm. um, I'm someone, I, I shared this with Dave Pachter recently on in an interview that we're gonna, my generation is gonna make just as many mistakes, mistakes as the generation before us. The question is, are we gonna make the same mistakes? Yeah, make some different ones, please. It, and I appreciate your humility um, because, you know, the thing I want is I want the spirit and the heart that you just talked about, because I feel what Jesus said, too, is don't call you don't you have one teacher. You have one teacher. Right. Um, and I, I find that uh, the competitiveness scares me of the next generation. Um, mm -hmm. Even with doing my channel and stuff, there's a part of me that just I the last thing I want to create is this competitiveness. You know, we, we need to think in terms of team right? and it, it, it is a grief. And I, I feel emotional, even just talking to you now about it. It, it makes me sad. It, it, it's crushing to see what we could be in certain right. avenues, you know, and, and there's an opportunity ahead of us. So, yeah, well, I, I would say, read the first chapter of dynamic leadership because it does that role and function thing. And I explain, you know, I've, use this illustration for years. If I'm up in front of a group teaching, I'm in charge at that point because that is my function. I'm the guy. And so I am Gordon who is teaching. Once I step out of that role, I'm Gordon, one of the brothers. Mm. I'm not Gordon, the teacher. I'm uh, that you can use it in a right way, but basically I, I'm just one of the brothers. And so once I step out of that role, I'm just one of, the, one of the bros. And uh, that's what I want to be, and that's what I am. And if we understand what centers we actually are, yes. <laughs> uh, how can we not be humble? Yeah. A role is an opportunity. A role is a responsibility. A role is a privilege. It's not something of which to boast. And so I'm grateful that I've been given a gift of teaching. I think God did give me that, and it works out in writing pretty well also. But goodness, I mean, it's a total gift. That is. And other people have other gifts uh, that are, you know, there are people that have a teaching gift that I'd like to have theirs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I think they have a, a, a more impressive gift than I do. But I'm grateful for the one that I have. And I want to use it and want to be grateful for it, but uh, not in any way be puffed up about it. Knowledge puffs up, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 8. So there so many things about that. It's so basic. That's the sad part, is it's so basic, this thing of understanding how we work together as a team and how we don't view authority like the world does. It is so basic that we miss it. We can't get it out of our DNA somehow. Mm. And it just, it interferes. And I'm grateful that I've grown enough, for example, in my marriage that 
I view us as a total team. I really do. And there's some things my wife does better than me. And I just tell her, Hey, that that's your deal. That's your gift, not mine. And if somebody's got to lead this one, you lead that. Okay. Cause that's your gift, not mine. I appreciate that, that humility. Um, let me ask you, what are some upcoming announcements, anything you projects, books, anything you, anything you want to pitch, this is your moment to do that. You know, I, I thought about that, uh, Kyle, I, not really. I okay. mean, I'm, I did, uh, receive an article the other day from Tony Mulholland. He, he actually reprinted, uh, a chapter in a book that was out of print. He reprinted it about teaching children, but it was all about our children's ministry type thing from many, many years ago. And I'd written uh, an article in it that he liked about God as father. And he edited it some and put it in their church bulletin in, in the Houston church. And I, I read it and I, I, I had a call him. I said, I, did I write that? When did I write that? I don't remember. <laughs> that. So it hit me that uh, I probably got a lot of material in spite of having put 17 books in print. I've got a lot of articles and parts of articles and all of that that are hidden away in my file somewhere that have never seen the light of a published day. Mm. And so that's, uh, I don't know if I'll call it Raiders of the Lost uh, Files or Lost Articles or what, but I'm going to try to locate some of these. I'm running out of time. I'm about to turn 79, so I'm running Ooh. out of time. And I need to get anything that I've got left in print. And uh, so I, I want to look at articles and, and come out with sort of more on my basic website. And my website is gordonferguson.org. Yes. I also have another website that's a, a blog on racial issues called blacktaxandwhitebenefits.com. And so I want to get articles out there uh, that maybe aren't in print just because the one on God is father. I thought, wow, that's pretty good. Did I write that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so I, that, that's one project I'm sort of on to now. Uh, there are others, but at least that's, that's one I'm working on right now. Well, I'll make sure that the information is down in the description. I just sent an article um, about generational differences to a couple of folks in my church that was on your website. There was another fellow had, who had written that article and it was very well done, yeah. but I just sent that out. And so I'll make sure that your website, I'm, I'm going to put you in the newsletter and all that you're, you're going to be Good. on my website as well. Um, so I appreciate you. Let me, I'm going to tell you what I tell all my guests that we are with you and God is for you, my brother. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. Well, it's been great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And for those of you that have listened to the entire video, I thank you. And the number of you that are listening all the way through is uh, kind of convicting because some of you guys remember little things that I say that I don't even know that I remember. And so I just thank you so much for your viewership, for subscribing, for liking, for sharing. This really is God's ministry that he's invited me into to help steward. And so I appreciate your support and I will see you guys next time.